welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Andrew McDonald, Associate Director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, and today I think you're going to enjoy our conversation with Kelly Capick. Kelly is a professor of theological studies at the Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and the award-winning author or editor of more than 15 books. His latest is You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News. Before we hear from Kelly, let's go to Ed Stetzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and Executive Director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. Very cool, very cool. So good, good to have a conversation today. You'll notice that our normal co-host is Daniel Yang. He's not here today because uh, Andrew McDonald, and you're just, you're not just like, you're like, I'm on sabbatical and you have some sort of interim title as well. What is that? So I'm the interim associate director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center and the associate director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center Research wow, Institute. That's a so lot a lot of, of a lot of background. It's on a card that goes yeah. like around. So so good. So so we're having this conversation, and we're we're actually recording this conversation just as this book was uh was really recorded or or mentioned or awarded a the Christianity Today uh theology popular. There's I guess there's like unpopular categories, but the theology <laughs> Parenthetical insertion, popular book of the year. So we're super excited to talk about your only human, how your limits reflect God's design, and that's good news. So because uh, Andrew had a particular interest in this, he's going to co-host with me as well. So uh, thanks to Kelly for joining us and jumping into this conversation together. We appreciate that. Uh, it's a delight to be with you, especially with uh, your targeted audience of pastors and leaders. This is a group I care about, especially on this message. Well, and it's it's right up the alley that so many pastors and church leaders mm. are struggling with. The timing is, uh, uh, some might say fortuitous. If you're at Covenant College, you'd say providential. <laughs> um, and because, I mean, this is a time when pastors are facing, pastors and church leaders are facing the reality of their limits. If mm. they came into uh, the 2020s with uh, low resilience and and at the end, you know, their cup empty, boy, very quickly they found out some of the challenges. We, we, we're we finding just the limits of who mm-hmm. we are. So let's jump in and let's talk some about how this conversation matters. How do our struggles with our own limits show up in not we're going to get to pastoral leadership and ministry but in just different areas and then start there in our lives and then let's go to the church yeah i mean there's all kinds of examples we could give and i would just start with my own kind of personal uh struggle which my guess is maybe you two and, and other listeners can relate to it's just this kind of daily sense often at the end of my day often even symbolically and literally as i lay my head on the pillow where i get this sense of guilt and shame coming over me and when I've evaluated you know, what it is, so often it's actually this nagging question of, Kelly, why didn't you get more done today? Why didn't you do more? And, you know, as a feel, and I would just feel guilt or shame on that. And when there's sin, we need to repent and, and delight in the glory and grace of Christ. But part of the nagging problem is, am I really supposed to feel that all the time? Mm-hmm. And starting to scratch below and, and get at that in the sense of, what unrealistic expectations, not just do I have of myself or do others have of me, but I think as a theologian, I'm very interested. It If you really start to scratch at it, you find we think God has these expectations of us, um, and that's really hurting us. Um, 
And so, but we don't tend to realize that. So it's partly exploring that and trying to get to the good of our creation, um, even with our limits. Yeah, you hit right at the beginning, you hit this really key phrase there that finitude is not a sin. And I think for people who are reading that, that just nails so much of kind of their feelings. Like you're talking about lying in bed and and feeling this guilt and shame. Right. And so help us to understand what is the relationship between sin and limit and these kind of these limitations that we feel and and how does that kind of that lie about finitude being a sin get into the kind of the pastor's heart, the leader's heart? Yeah, because part of what's happened is we've started to imagine that our limits are the result of sin in the fall. And part of what's and and this is partly because as evangelicals and others, we kind of have a, a very weak or underdeveloped doctrine of creation and the goodness of creation. And the surprise is God actually made us good, and part of the good is limits. <laughs> I, the fancy word is finitude, but finitude just means limits of space, time, knowledge, and power. But even before there was any sin or fall in the world, we were made with limits. We were made to be dependent on God. We're made to be dependent on our neighbor. We're made to be dependent on the earth. And that dependence isn't part of sin or the fall. It's part of the good of creation. And just kind of think about it. When we, if if, if we're talking and we said, you know, Ed, Ed, that guy's just, he's a, he's really dependent on a lot of people. That doesn't sound like a compliment by and large. Right. It sounds like a really a negative thing. And yet if, if central to being truly human as God made us, is the good of these dependencies. Think about how hard it is to talk about spiritual formation when we in the West have so associated dependence with a problem, with with a negative thing that we need to overcome, rather than this is the good. So sin isn't what makes us dependent. Sin is what distorts those dependencies, perverts them, disorders them. Um, but but there's a lot of work to be done there to, to rethink the good of these dependencies, which is just another way of talking about relationship. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I don't think in terms of, I mean, just my natural inclination is I don't think in terms of dependency being good. I, I would say mm -hmm. to you, this is this conversation is not my strength. Um, the One of the things that I tend to like when people say it about me is, is that I tend to have a high capacity and I do in a remarkable number sure. of things. And, yeah. and I like that exhortation. But um, your book challenges and gives kind of a different path to embrace mm -hmm. that. So so what does that look like in, I guess, in some ways? You know, what, what questions should we be asking ourselves? Being limited feels frustrating. What yeah. questions should I be asking myself? I'd rather be limitless in what I do, yeah. but what do I need to ask myself? What is Ed Stetzer, who this is not his strength? And a lot of our pastor and church leaders, sure. what do we need to be thinking? Yeah, I mean, um, rather than being vague and philosophical, I think a concrete way to think about it is the question of humility. We all know, especially as leaders, yes, we should be humble. Let's talk about humility. But if you kind of explore it with Christians, our, our gut instinct is if someone says, why should you be humble? We say, well, because we're sinners. And yes, because we're sinners, that should contribute to our humility. But again, even before the fall, even before there was any sin in the world, Adam and Eve were meant to be humble. That means to depend on God, neighbor, and earth. And so how, how this actually relates is Humility doesn't just say, I'm sorry, can you forgive me? Humility says, can you help me? And I don't, and, and I don't know. That's part of it. That's part of the good. So as leaders, a concrete, concrete questions are, do I ever ask questions? Am I genuinely curious? 
Do I think I need to solve all the problems? Do I need to have all the answers? For me, those have been painful but helpful things to explore. Am I listening as much? Am I asking as much as I'm speaking? Some of those questions are a way to dig into this. Yeah, I guess I guess I didn't think of it in the way I haven't thought of it until the in the way you framed it. We you're framing this in around not limits as negative, but limits as part of God's design that we're yeah. God made us creatures and mm-hmm. more. So it seems that I need to embrace uh, the creatureliness right. and the limitations that God designed. But it also does seem that I remember uh, Wayne Cordero and I were teaching a class together, and Wayne. Wayne said that, you know, people have uh, different plates. You want to keep your plate full for what you're doing, mm-hmm. but some people's plates are larger and can handle more. Some yeah. people's plates are smaller. But clearly the implication was that the bigger plate is better uh, and the mm-hmm. smaller plate is – I don't know that Wayne would have said that, but that's how yeah, yeah. I heard it in my right. sinful self. So, I mean, so this is going to be applied differently to different people because we're created differently. Yeah. So how do we think about this? How do we stretch ourselves – to do better and more, but also acknowledge the limitations that come in God's good design and creation. Yeah, that, that's such a great question. I mean, because, you know, athletes only become good athletes when they think they've come up against their limit and they push through it, right? So I'm not naive about that. Limits, it's it's a bit of a tricky business. Intellectually, you know, we're, you and I teach in college and graduate schools, and, and we need to help students push through some of those limits. So what does that look like? And I guess I, I would reframe it a little bit and just say, for me, one of the one of the aha moments has been the discovery that I realize I've made productivity and efficiency my highest values. And they're not God's highest values. God, no matter how no matter how you think God made the world and how when he made the world, everybody can agree on this that God could have made it in a millisecond. And the fact that he doesn't make it in a millisecond, whether it's six 24-hour days or six trillion, is irrelevant. He is comfortable with process. And, and part of working through that is productivity and efficiency, which are values for God, they're not his highest. His highest value is love. And so when it comes to that, we are all different. One of the ways we, t- we test, is this a healthy pushing through our limits or is it unhealthy? Is, is this bringing about shalom or is it undermining it? Hmm. How is this affecting relationships? How is this affecting relationship with God, neighbor? earth that that would be part of the you know, just a concrete way to start to think through it i think but i but i can hear kelly i can hear people like just screaming on, on the other end of this that that that's that's all well and good but what about other people and how they view us like the value system that we seem to be in like it would be mm. great to be to walk in and say you know i've hit my god is teaching me about my fini- my my finitude and about uh, my limits and all that and then your boss or your coworkers are like, that's yeah. great. Now get back to work. Right. And yeah. so how do we deal with the culture of value, the, 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 the that places this frustration on us, that like, this value of, of how many, how your outputs and, and all yeah. these different things we're, we're within something here that seems to be in some ways trapping. I think people would say. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And these are, there are some individual kind of pious practices we can cultivate, but you're also pointing to larger structural issues, right? <laughs> structural sin and just and, and challenges, and we we can't be naive to that. Um, but I also also honestly think that's partly why this stuff resonates with people. Is stress, for example, is a good gift from God. He made us 
and we're using these words in some general ways in this context, but he made it so that if you hear, if you hear the, you know, the sound of a lion roar, you're able to run a little faster, right? When you're walking through a dark alley, your, your attention's a bit up, right? And you can handle that. You have final exams, you can push, right? Stress actually can be a positive thing. It's actually how you need some stress on bones for them to get strong. The problem is we've taken a good gift and we've made it a terrible master. And where stress is meant to be episodic, we've made it a lifestyle. So what? So when you're asking, you know, when bosses and others have all these expectations, one of the questions is just, yeah, but is it realistic in any way? It's fascinating. There's a guy, Oliver Berkman, New York, you know, he's written bestsellers on time management. And his um, recent book is called 4,000 Weeks. And, and it's, I don't know if you, you've seen it. And it's fascinating because from what I can tell, I don't. I don't think he's a believer. He's engaged with some Christian literature, but basically he's someone who's written all these time management books and he has this aha moment where he realizes all of us who are talking about time management are actually just trying to deny our mortality. Mm. And here's this guy who's just not from a position of faith saying, why do we feel guilty for not getting more done when it's just impossible and unrealistic, whether it's bosses or employees. So you're asking good questions that require both individual and corporate rethinking. Um, and that's a, that's a longer conversation. But I do think the fact that people have unrealistic expectations of us at some point, the only way you, you start to change it is by having honest conversations, trying to, and I'll, I'll end with this. I think part of what the church needs to do in our day as, a, as an apologetic and witness is to help people reimagine what a humane life looks like. Fascinating, fascinating. Okay, um, so again, the book. In case you're joining us late, I don't know how you can join us late. I have a radio show, so I'm used to saying it's that. A podcast. It's a podcast. <laughs> so so you're not really clicked in the middle. But I have a radio show, so I'm like, hey, if you're driving down the road, I, anyway, it's your only human. How your limits reflect God's design and why that's good news. So I think I can affirm that it's true. Your limits mm -hmm. do reflect God's design. Though again, I, I, again, your book challenged me to think and challenges me to think that way. Uh, you, you've already talked some about how the pace, and again, this is helpful. Again, you'll find this in the book, is uh, you know the pace that God accomplishes his tasks. He didn't mm -hmm. need to do it over this span of time. You didn't address some, but it's probably worth going down the road some uh, in your, your in our conversation about Christology. It's in mm -hmm. the book, but in the Christology, the limitations of Jesus mm -hmm. as an incarnated human yeah. does relate to this topic as well. Take us down that road theologically for a bit. Yeah, I love that you asked that since when we're recording it, it's Advent season. And uh, yeah, for me, part of what has captured me with this idea in the last 20, 25 years in particular is the humanity of Jesus. And for example, there's this early church, uh, Father Tertullian, and he has this amazing uh, book called um, The Carnage Christi, The Carnage, the, the Flesh of Christ. And he's meditating on the significance of Jesus. And, he's, and he talks about Mary's afterbirth. Now think about that, you know. <laughs> When was the no, last time you. in a sermon no, you, you. you heard reflections <laughs> on Mary's afterbirth? But he's yeah, talking sir. about how theologically significant it is, right? This is actually very earthy. And and he's he's attacking the Gnostics in his day who are very uncomfortable with God and the flesh because the flesh is very unspiritual and bad. And he's saying, no, no, no. The afterbirth, this significance of Jesus's connection to Mary represents God's great yes to creation. The God who loved what he made doesn't hate it now 
He loves it enough to remake it. And he loves it and he affirms it by entering into it. And he enters, the infinite God enters into finitude in and through the incarnate Christ. And and just starting to explore that's pretty staggering um, because it's like us in all ways yet without sin, including this reality of finitude. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, yes, I mean, this is ultimately part of what we learn from the coming of Jesus and the incarnation, you know, uh, fully God and fully man. I'm trying to press a little more, though, because I mm. want to say I, I bet I, that observation is true. Mm-hmm. But how has that observation caused me to think differently about the bad pace that I admittedly do have and take in my life? So take it. I want to push you a little more. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So how does that what is that? I mean, I can say these things are true. How does it impact me to live differently? In, in terms of incarnation, I mean, part of part of what's so staggering is um, Jesus's full life. So much of the Gospels concentrates just on his the final years and particularly the final weeks of his life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people think, well, that doesn't that means his life overall. Maybe that didn't really matter. But actually, the reason why we don't have a lot about the rest of his life seems to be because it's so ordinary. <laughs> In other words, what makes the news is what's newsworthy and different. We don't read a lot about Jesus dying with belly laughter, not because he didn't, but because he he would have. It's a very human thing to do, all these kind of things. And so part of it is just trying to trying to figure out how comfortable is God, how comfortable is Christ with this reality of being an earthly creature? And it is true, you know, again, given our particular audience here, it is true. You have, you have Jesus tell the disciples after a full day, listen, let we need to get away and pray. And then all of a sudden they get out in the boat and they get to the other side and there's all, there's a crowd and he wanted to retreat. And instead they have to push themselves because Jesus says, no, I, I'm like a, th- these are sheep without a shepherd. So he pushes himself. And at times in ministry, you still need to do that. You need to go beyond what you think your limit is. But when you keep reading, then Jesus, then he goes away still because he still mm-hmm. needs the quiet. He still needs the alone. He still needs the restoration. Um, and so there is this sense of what unrealistic expectations do we have of ourselves? And of leaders, I do think we want we are compassionate to our congregation and we said god really loves you he really accepts you you're not your work but no matter what our words say if we are modeling to them we never stop we never say no then how can they really believe the benediction we're pronouncing over them mm-hmm. right so that's part so- of the challenge so, so just a couple months ago, we had the Litvin Symposium here, where I remember Alan Noble said something really profound, where he he was talking about rest and taking rest for the sake here of, at the, uh, of we rest. At the, uh, the Wheaton College, College, we did a symposium, right? And so Alan Noble was talking about the importance of rest for the sake of rest, not yeah. to recharge your batteries to get yeah. back in. It's I not did, an effectiveness. I didn't, I didn't like that talk. Yeah, because <laughs> I can't. So I can't. I'm just being transparent. I know. I know. But he he talked about rest, and and that resonated with me in terms of your book because mm. the idea of rest as worship, this idea that worship is is re, worship and rest have a kind of almost like a cyclical relationship mm-hmm. with each other. And so I'm interested in in how can how can leaders going all the way back to your 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 point about guilt and shame how mm. can worship help pastors address some of those underlying issues that when they take breaks they feel guilty when they're yeah. off with their family they feel like they need to be back at the church they get their emails are piling up how can pastors use worship to address those underlying worship. problems good. yeah that's great um and 
you know, Alexander Schwemann, um, Eastern Orthodox theologian, uh, decades ago, he defined secularism as the negation of worship. And and what's fascinating about his definition is this is something, therefore, that Christians can Christians can be secular in this kind of way. In other words, we can do these practices, we can do these things, but is it actual worship? What are, what are we doing? Um, so when you say, how does worship fit into this? There is a bit of a warning right at the beginning is, well, are we making worship another task? Is it another thing that we want to be efficient? Is it like the recharge? And part of what's amazing is worship, like love, is inefficient. <laughs> and um, I think that's super hard for us. I think it's hard for us to just be with God um, because it honestly feels so inefficient. And so you ask most Christians, including most re- leaders, do you pray like you think you should? And the answer is almost always no. Sure. But if we explore why, it's often no one wants to say it. It's because it feels like a waste of time. I'm not doing anything. I'm wasting time. God has stuff for me to do. Mm-hmm. And so one of the test cases of our view of are we really a creature and do we really believe we are who God says he, we are and he is who he says he is, is the cultivation of worship and prayer. And 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 prayer, not just God, I need you, I need you, I need you, although it is that, but it's also expressions of gratitude are a way of expressing our lament. You know, it's interesting because so Andrew wanted to have you on. He sort of uh, he set this up and then he invited himself as co-host. There's Daniel's perfectly available. He's in his office right now. Um, and because, uh, you know, I, I and part of me wonder, I wonder if this is like an intervention for, for, for me. But that's, we did that's call fine. this meeting for you. Ed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's fine. I don't mind. I don't mind a good intervention. So you're safe. Here. I'm safe. It's a safe place. Um, yeah. So but but I totally want to say that I feel it, see it, want it, need it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I speak for, you know, we tens of thousands of wonderful people who are listening right. to this podcast, and most of them are working and serving in places that um, they're pastors of a local church. And I'm going to say yeah. to the church, hey, I'm going to rest more is not going to be the thing that's immediately received well by yeah. this. Um, yeah. They're expected to to maybe grow the church or maybe they're, you know, trying to get out of COVID and, you know, what right. do we look like? Why do we recover our attendance levels and all this sort of stuff? So if um, the expectations challenge is part of the challenge we have to face, but we also have the, maybe the pulpit or the Bible study, mm-hmm. how do we simultaneously as pastors and church leaders uh, teach and lead in these things? Let me remind everyone that the book is You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That is Good News. So I read it. I agree. It's good news. How do I get the body of believers that I'm leading yeah. to buy into this for themselves and not just see me as saying I need a I need a vacation? Yeah, in yeah, the yeah. No, it's a great question because what what can't be is it's just a pastor who feels tired and they just need a break. What which yeah. I don't doubt. I mean, yeah, there's that. That's anyone real. who's been yeah. in ministry in the last six yeah. years. All, all the pastors and pastor groups I speak to, they're all wiped out, and yep. most of you know. If they can do anything else, many of them are leaving. Um, so that's a, a group I care a lot about. But you're right. A congregation is not it's not going to resonate if it just feels like the pastor. But the reality is the congregation is made up of so many people that are feeling this. And I, I mean, I have a lot of stay at home parents with little kids who are not making money and outside employment who feel these exact things. There are teenagers who are feeling these exact things. 
So it's actually not a, it's not the pastor's problem. So I do think there are hard questions to ask. Are we doing too much as a church? Mm -hmm. Right. We all know the statistics are kind of an 80, 20, uh, or 75, you know, uh, split where 20% of the church or less does the vast majority of work. And everyone knows if more people do more and fewer, you know, that's good for everybody. But I really do think it takes incredible courage to think about this and to talk about it. And so the advice I would give to the leaders is rather than trying to say, I need to sneak in an excuse, right? This is about me. It's, well, if you're the pastor, you need to start cultivating in the church a different sanctified imagination. I would put it this I think that's a different way to go. What is the imagination? I do think the apologetics in our day, I I, I think I want to write about this, is, is go therefore and make humans. <laughs> because I think discipleship in our day that's so countercultural is to present a humane existence in an increasingly mm. inhumane world. Wow. And so I you, think the pastors can talk into that. I mean, you, you hit on a, a piece a little bit ago, but like the apologetic. And I think that that you had a, you had a phrase in the, in, in the book that it takes an entire community to reflect one Messiah, which seemed very mm. kind of Leslie Newbegin ish to me in terms of like the role of the congregation as the, as the demonstration of the gospel. So help us understand how embodying this, how embodying this truth can impact how church leaders and pastors can can see other people outside of their church as well as yeah. be an apologetic to the community. Yeah, that's great. I mean, take, for example, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats episode, where the thing that separates the sheep and the goat, do you clothe the naked, feed the hungry, uh, visit prisoners, those kind of things. Like, what in the, what in the world do you do with that? And um, I, I tell the story sometimes. I had a former student who's now in ministry. He pours himself out for college students. He does this great ministry. But he wrote, when all, or he called me in all earnestness and just said, I've been meditating on Matthew 25. And I don't know if I'm a sheep or a goat. And you're like, this guy's been to seminary. He's in ministry. Wow. But he's like, I have no money. I have no time to go to food shelter. I have no, I can't visit prisoners. And we dismiss him like, hey, why are you so anxious? But to his credit, he's taking the scriptures. He's taking the red letter seriously, right? But so I think we have this tension in our churches because we have a rise of activism of people who see legitimate injustices and needs in our world and want to address them. And then people who have seen all the burnout in the church and are responding by saying like, no, that's just political. And Matthew 25, I think, is a great example because Jesus isn't joking around. So the answer I ended up giving to that guy, which I comfort myself with, is that this week I have shared the gospel with people in Nepal and I've prayed at the bedside of a, a sick child in the hospital and I've helped people who are recovering from being sex trafficked. And I've done all these things, not because Kelly has done them, but because by the spirit, I am united to the people of God. Mm -hmm. And it takes the whole church to be the one body of Christ. And so I do think pastorally, the more we can affirm, even though we all know this, it's all the parts of the body, everyone needs to be honored, but reimagining and think about like, no, no, we do need to care about prisoners and injustice, but you, it can really matter to God but it doesn't mean that you personally need to do everything. Hmm. And our problem is we feel like if it's valuable and important, then I must do it. And that's where our individualism is hurting us. If we affirm the community, then it's wonderful that there are things that are happening, even stuff we don't know about. The problem is if there's no one in our communities doing these things, then we've got big issues. Yeah, I, I want to I connect this book a little bit with, with your previous one, Embodied Hope. Hmm. 
And and both of them seem embodied hope touch so much more on suffering and pain and kind of the hope of the gospel in the midst of kind of a lot of these things. But the common thread that I saw between both of them is kind of paying attention to the rhythms of of kind of how we've subverted and and kind of missed the point of what kind of human existence is. And I think your point about go go for, go forward and make humans is is a big piece. But how do you see the connection between the the two pieces? Be the previous one on pain and suffering and now kind of calling attention to our human limitations. Do you see the two as connected or yeah, are they are yeah. two different pieces? Yeah. Thank you for asking that and um, picking that up. That's very thoughtful of you. Uh, some people have told me now who'd read embodied hope and then read you're only human. Like now I want to read them in reverse because, mm. and, and I really do think it was only the short for, for your audience. The short story is just my, my my wife and I were married in 1993. She got cancer in 2008. We were married nine years before we had kids. So we had little kids at the time. In God's grace, she got through cancer, was declared cancer-free. But since 2010, every day to this day deals with pretty serious chronic pain and fatigue. And so this book, Embodied Hope, is wrestling through pain and suffering. And so part of it is, and and you know, even getting back to some of what Ed was asking about earlier, part of my wife and I are both. I don't know if it's type A people. We like to get things done. We And all of this is taken and stripped things away. And we needed to create margin in our life. And then the reality is like, nope, we need to cut more out. And we need to cut more out. And we need to cut more out. And, and I do think, to be perfectly honest, finitude and the good of our limits doesn't tend to come to us unless it's forced on us for various reasons. Hmm. So I do think it was, I was only able to finally write what I wanted to about the goodness of creation after I had written about lament and sin hmm. and brokenness. Wow. Um, and because I think without lament, if you just talk about the goodness of creation, we end up lying and making a plastic creation. It's not, not being honest about how hard it is. Yeah. In addition to being uh intervention and intervention time for me, um, <laughs> I think it's good for a lot of pastors and church leaders as we're thinking about these kinds of issues. So, um, so come back with me to the pastor and church leader audience and, mm. um, some steps that, because we need steps, which, mm. you know, we're only human to quote the book title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what can we take steps now to embrace our limits, live more fully, uh, embrace mm. the cre- just the crew, the, the creatureness yeah. Uh, yeah, of who we are and uh, kind of your closing thoughts for our audience. Yeah, that's great. I mean, one of the things is, again, I don't know when this will come out, but right now it's we're, we're talking mid-December. And this is a, as you know, this is a brutal time for, it's a wonderful time, but a brutal time for churches. I was speaking uh, to a, a large church um, of that had, I was just speaking to their pastors and staff in Texas not too long ago, and they had the head janitor there. And he just raised it. He just said, here's the thing. I haven't had a day off. My crew has been working seven days a week f- for the last 15 days. And and so he's like, we're dying. We can't do any more events. So I do think what I would say is, listen, December is packed. But can we get back to seasons? There's a reason why the church calendar is important, where you like, there are times of Advent and Easter. and But there's also regular seasons they're normal and th- those are are longer and so do we allow our our leaders and our congregations to have those rhythms or are we making if every day is important nothing's important right so i do think rhythm is a step to go what what are ways we can cultivate that again what are ways that we can honor rest in our in our churches and in ourselves the one in seven pattern 
uh, but beyond. And I do think no one, as you guys know, no one's going to fight for the pastor to rest. And yeah. this this gets difficult. I And it sounds selfish, but for the good of your congregation, you need to set aside time to be unproductive. <laughs> you need to set aside time to be with God and to listen. And I really encourage quiet. And I think it's just so hard. It's hard for me. Um, but yeah, we could talk about that for a long, the last we chapter could. deals with some practical steps, if that helps yeah. people. And I want to commend people again to pick up the book. I think people will find it helpful. It's your only human, how your limits reflect God's design, how that's good news. I will tell you that, uh, receiving the intervention, you know, just living in, uh, the UK for the last few months and mm-hmm. kind of fellowshipping some with the, you know, there at Oxford with the evangelicals there who sort of have, uh, a much more rootedness and restedness to them. Mm. It's fascinating how a lot of this is an American thing. Not all of yeah. it, but yeah. but a lot of it's an American thing. So again, thank you for taking the time with us. We're talking to Dr. Kelly Capic. He's the author of the new book, You're Only Human. And as always, thanks for listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. You'll find more interviews as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And if you found our conversation helpful, uh, take a few moments, leave us a review. That helps other people find the podcast as well. Free resources for pastors and church leaders. And hopefully you benefited from the content today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.